Good afternoon, Seattle, Washington. Josh Hammer subbing in for Jason Rance today. You're listening to The Jason Rance Show on 770 AM KTTH Seattle. Always grateful to Jason for the opportunity to help you on your afternoon drive, entertain you in the afternoons. If you like what you hear, you can check out my own show, The Josh Hammer Show, on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be with you for the next three hours and looking forward to getting started. So let's start by hearing what's trending. What's trending in Trumplandia? What is trending in Trumplandia? So it has been now over a week since the first Republican presidential debate. We have now had some time to see some polling come in, some new monetary data come in, some fundraising metrics coming in, some national horse race numbers, some Iowa numbers, New Hampshire numbers. We've started to see some of it. Admittedly, we're still waiting on quite a bit more. Now, if you recall back to last week, so the first Republican debate ended up being the same night as Trump sitting down with Tucker Carlson to air a pre-recorded interview at Trump's golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. It aired on Twitter or X, I guess we're calling it now, in the Elon Musk era. And a lot of the eyeballs at that time kind of superficially seemed to indicate that the ratings for the Tucker-Trump interview actually blew out the debate as far as numbers. It, it, it then kind of turned out that if you actually looked more carefully at the data, that the narrative didn't really quite hold up. The Trump-Tucker interview got a, a an astronomical and unfathomably high number of impressions. And Twitter, X again, whatever we're calling it, they count really just scrolling down in your feed and hovering over a video for a one and a half, two seconds or so. Apparently that counts as a view under Elon Musk's new view. So it's really not an apples to apples comparison. I read a really good write up at Mediaite, the the website that basically quoted someone who used to work in, in Nielsen ratings for cable companies and explained that if you actually go on an apples to apples comparison, it appeared that the debate actually did surpass the Trump Tucker interview as far as actual kind of people who watched for any number of duration of time, 30, 60 minutes or so. And I, the reason I say all that is because from my vantage point, that that held up. I mean, that notion was really kind of anecdotally confirmed by the fact that no one really seemed to be talking much about the Trump-Tucker debate. I'm not sure that it necessarily got the former president a whole ton of, of free media or earned media or anything of that sort. Now, it, it's unclear if anyone came away from that debate as kind of a truly unscathed victor. I'm not sure that there was a Goliath towering over a bunch of Davids or anything like that. But it did seem based on based on the polling, there was a Fox News focus group based on all the polling that I saw that people who thought that that debate was won by anyone, they generally chose Florida Governor Ron DeSantis or Vivek Ramaswamy. There was a poll that I saw out of Iowa from this past Friday. It was a public opinion strategies poll that did show that DeSantis' support in the all-important first-in-the-nation Hawkeye state did shoot up about seven points. I think it was from 17 to 24 or something along those lines. Trump's support actually dipped one point or so. On Vivek, it's also worth pointing out that even though many said that he did win the debate, I think many others also said that he lost the debate. And if you look at his favorable, unfavorable metrics after the debate, turns out that his unfavorable numbers actually went up a, a heck of a lot more than, than his favorable numbers went up. And of course, it was just the next day that we had the mugshot scene around the world. You know, I joined Jason on this very program as, as a guest last Friday to talk about it a little bit. 
And Trump did successfully fundraise off of that mugshot. It was his grand return to, to X, literally his first tweet post, whatever we're calling it, in two and a half years since two or three days after the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. He, it was his grand return to the platform. And uh, somewhat ironically, you know, it, it was this whole image. And to be clear, I mean, this image is automatically iconic. No doubt about that. I, zero doubt about that. This image of Trump with that, uh, what do you even call that? I mean, is, is, is it a grimace? It's like a slightly confused grimace. It, it just, it's just an iconic photo. I mean, no matter how you feel about the guy, that is going to go down in the annals of American history, I, I, I think, is one of the most memorable photos, certainly of, of the 21st century. And he was very he was very shrewd to try to fundraise off of that and fundraise. He did fundraise. He did. He and his affiliate Super PAC make America Great Inc. to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. However, however, article drops this morning from USA Today that is making its way across social media, making its way across all the group chats and email listservs and all that here. Trump is running out of other people's money to pay lawyers. Save America PAC is almost broke. So it's a little confusing because there are two independent super PACs here. By the way, side note, you know, as, as, as a lawyer by training, I have to say that campaign finance, federal campaign finance in this country is structured in the most obtuse and obfuscating manner possible. The fact that there are multiple competing outside entities, and the reason for that is because there are actual hard dollar caps on the amount that you can directly donate to a candidate. The problem, of course, with all of these super PACs is that they're largely unaccountable. You're not sure who's donating to them. And then you have this law, unclear exactly how the law is enforced, I would say, that the super PACs in the campaign cannot actually directly communicate with one another. So it's really a whole mess. And it's frankly just waiting for some broad sweeping First Amendment ruling that effectively abolishes hard dollar caps to donate to campaigns. Certainly on the current court, I think you have probably at least two or three votes for that proposition, I, I would imagine. But anyway, until unless and until that happens, that is what you have, is you have these outside super PACs. And Trump has Save America PAC and Make America Great Again, Inc. Make America Great Again, Inc. is the 2024 Trump campaign adjacent super PAC. By contrast, Save America PAC was what has been operating for the past few years. That's what Trump has typically been fundraising about, going back to all of his rallies in the 2022 midterms. You know, when he um, when he first got going there with his speech in Mar-a-Lago to formally announce his campaign shortly after the election last November. And Save America has been primarily funding the increasingly escalating legal fees for Donald Trump and for his co-defendants in, in many of these jurisdictions. And the point of this USA Today article is that of the $156.4 million that it has raised, it has spent effectively all but $4 million left. It is sitting currently on less than $4 million. It is spent I, – I, I, I'm waiting to see if anyone has kind of fact-checked this, but I haven't seen anything yet, so I have to take them at their word. Apparently, it has spent $150 million, and 4 to $6 million, roughly speaking, is left. Now, bear in mind, the trials haven't even started yet. 
They, they legitimately have not even started yet. Trump obviously is under criminal prosecution in four separate jurisdictions. New York City with the Alvin Bragg, the Soros-funded New York City Manhattan prosecutor. There are the two federal cases, special counsel Jack Smith in South Florida and in Washington, D.C. And then there is what I believe to be the most perilous of them all for the former president's potential actual jail time incarceration. And that is what's going on in Fulton County, Georgia, with another very liberal prosecutor, Fonnie Wilson. Also earlier today, Trump formally pled not guilty there in the Fulton County, Georgia case. He waived his arraignment. So he's not going to have to go back there into court. He is formally pleading not guilty without having to physically go back into court. A, a slight twist there in in Georgia is his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is filing – and Mark Meadows, to clarify, is, is a co-defendant in this case. And look, I mean I, I, I'll get to the point I want to make in just a second here, but it goes without saying. I mean this is horrific stuff. Horrific stuff. I mean, Mark Meadows was an exceptional congressman from the great state of North Carolina. He is a good man. He is a good man. He has been primarily affiliated with CPI, the Conservative Partnership Institute, which is one of the rare, actually very good conservative outside organizations, think tank activist group. He has been working there with former South Carolina Senator Jim DeMint for the past few years here. Mark and Mark and his family are a great American family. Mark is a great American patriot, and it genuinely breaks my heart and makes my blood boil that people like Mark Meadows, John Eastman, Jenna Ellis, that these great patriots are literally being criminally prosecuted. It's just disgraceful stuff in any event, because we could talk about that for hours. Mark Meadows, because he was Trump's chief of staff. At the time that all this went down, the 2020 election aftermath leading up to the January 6, 2021 events, he is filing a motion to move that case from state court to federal court. Now, Fonnie Wilson, the DA there, would not like that. She would prefer to have the jurors, the court that she is familiar with. But his Meadows' basic argument is that he, since he was acting as he did when it came to the attempts to change the outcome of the vote in Georgia, his argument is that because he was acting – in an official federal governmental capacity as Donald Trump's chief of staff. Therefore, there should be in a federal court. And it is likely that all these cases will be heard at the same time in the same court. They're going to want to try them at, in the same venue. I mean, it kind of beggars belief that they would try some of these co-defendants here in state court or federal court. So it remains to be seen whether Trump himself will actually be there in the state court system, just in Fulton County, Georgia, or there in the Northern District of Georgia in the federal system. The reason that's important is because the juror pool, if you move it to federal court, could not just be Fulton County, Georgia, which is Atlanta, very blue, 75% voting Biden County, but you could actually then expand it to the suburbs, the exurbs. I think it's like an eight or nine county radius, something along those lines. Probably going to get a, a a fairer jury there. So anyway, Trump pled not guilty, and he, and he waived his arraignment there in Georgia earlier Today, Now, another troubling data point for Trump just came across, I think, yesterday as well. Now, if you go back to 2016, look, there's been infinite analysis of the 2016 presidential election. Infinite. I mean, how did Trump break through the blue wall, the Rust Belt, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, 
you know, what's his talk on trade, his skepticism of expanding trade deals, NAFTA, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, all, all this stuff, right? But really, the reason above all that Trump won in 2016, one, is that Hillary Clinton was a catastrophically unpopular candidate, a catastrophically unpopular. Independents flocked to Trump for the very simple reason that they did not want to pull the lever for Hillary Clinton. She had the whole email scandal, all of that. And again, this is where the substantive analysis could get in. This is his stance on trade, immigration, and whatnot. But Trump was able to turn out the white working class at a really, really high rate. And he won them at a very, very high rate. Now, it's worth emphasizing as well that when you go from 2016 and 2020, I think – I'd have to double-check this, but I think it was the only demographic where Trump actually lost support from 2016 and 2020 was with the white working class. Why, you might ask? Well, frankly, because he didn't actually live up to a lot of what he campaigned on when he came to those exact issues. Yes, he slapped some tariffs on China. He actually has a letter in the Wall Street Journal, a letter to the editor that came out literally this morning talking about those tariffs. But he didn't do what he said he would do on immigration. That is a simple fact. I see a lot of people on Twitter saying he, he built the wall. I mean, what are you guys talking about? Have you been to the southern border? Have you been to the Rio Grande Valley? Have you been to the high Sonoran Desert there in Arizona? The wall is not there. I mean, this is this is absolutely nonsensical. So his white working class support actually cratered from 2016 to 2020, and according to this article that I saw just yesterday, it's actually gotten a lot worse. So according to the polling firm WPA Intelligence, whereas Trump was beating Biden by 17 percentage points among all of white voters, obviously he did much better than that among the white working class, but his lead among just white voters in general – over Biden was 17 points in 2020 exit polling, that has now shrunk in half. He's now leading Biden, according to this pollster, WPA Intelligence, which is headed up by Chris Wilson, who is an exceptional pollster. Apparently, Trump is now leading Biden by 8.8 points only in this particular demographic, in the white vote. Now, all of this data should suggest to you that perhaps consider the possibility that Donald Trump is not actually the Republican Party's strongest bet to defeat Joe Biden next fall. There was lots of polling that shows that independent voters, again, who swung heavily his way back in 2016 over Hillary Clinton, there's lots of data. There was a New York Times poll in late July, I believe it was, that showed that independent voters would now heavily go Biden's way over Trump. Furthermore, it's it's worth emphasizing, look, are these four criminal prosecutions grossly unjust? Are they the politicization of, of the rule of law, the weaponization of the rule of law, unprecedented crossing of the Rubicon lawfare? Yes, yes, they are all of these things. All of what you are hearing from other conservative commentators saying this, all of that is true. All of that is definitely true true however however that does not necessarily mean that trump is the obvious guy to fix the system one thing that i was waiting on in the donald trump tucker carlson interview which was somewhat of a softball interview one thing i was waiting on was to hear talk about electoral integrity about the vote 
you know, if the, if the 2020 election was truly stolen, then what have you done, Mr. Trump, to better secure it for next time? I, I'm not sure that anyone has asked him that question directly, and I heavily suspect the answer would be nothing. So there, there, there are just a, a, a ton of glaring problems here. And the other problem is that because these persecutions are so unjust, I think a lot of people on the right, a lot of conservatives, card-carrying Republican voters, they think that just because this is so unjust that Trump will magically get off the hook. Well, let me tell you, as a lawyer by training who clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, I dealt with many federal criminal cases. That's not how this works. 91 criminal counts in four separate prosecutions is a very, very serious deal. You could think whatever you want about the unjust nature of what they're doing to him. I think it's horrible, absolutely horrible, truly disgraceful in particular, perhaps when it comes to the undermining of the legal profession, people like John Eastman, Jenna Ellis. It's disgusting, absolutely disgusting. That does not mean that Trump is magically going to get off the hook. Each case has its own jurors, its own judge, its own rules of criminal procedure. Each vote on those counts is going to have to be taken as an independent data point. You can't just look at it from a 35,000-foot view and say, oh, all of this is nonsense. This is obviously political and stupid, which it is. But you can't look at it from that perspective and then just automatically conclude that it's all going to go away. In fact, if I had to predict right now whether there is a greater chance that Donald Trump goes to jail at some point in his life because of these four prosecutions or not, I think there's a greater chance that he goes to jail. Really? 91 criminal accounts. What? Are, 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 the, are the prosecutors going to go 0 for 91 across four jurisdictions? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know, though. I, I, I certainly would not want to bet on that. Having said all that, the national polls are where they are. It's gotten a little closer in Iowa. It depends on the pollster, of course. We'll talk in just a few minutes about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's had an exceptional few news cycles with his handling of, of the hurricane here. But Trump definitely is still dominating right now. And, you know, it's worth dwelling on the, on the whole mugshot thing just for just for a, a second here, because that really continues to be one of the talks of the town. He, he, he thinks the mugshot's going to help him win the black vote. There's been a lot of debate about this in the past few years. Let's let's go ahead and take a quick listen to what Donald Trump Jr. had to say about this very recently. The people that actually struck me the most were not people in attendance. It was the security guards at the event, a group of them, and, and on like three separate occasions. African-American men came up to me. They go, hey, man, we're never voting for that other guy. We get all of this stuff. It was like they were going out of their way to let me know that they understood exactly what was going on. And I was like, man, you know, and I get I get it. Like Republicans have talked about this forever. You know, maybe one day, you know, people will realize that, you know, the Democrats have literally done nothing to help the African-American community. If anything, they've done incredible and perhaps in many cases – Irreparable damage to those to that community. These guys got it, man. They they went. It was. I was just like, wow. 
So, there, again, there's been a lot of talk over the past few days about whether this mugshot will somehow pick up more of the black vote. You know, my friend Rob Smith did a whole video, a tweet that went viral, talking about how this is just simply not going to happen. I mean, look, if Republicans could gain 20 percent of the national black vote, then Democrats would never win another election. But it's simply not going to happen. I mean, this was the idea behind passing the First Step Act, the so-called criminal justice reform legislation, which I opposed from the from the very start and continue to oppose. I hope that it's overturned. It's a terrible piece of legislation and amounts to a mass jailbreak. But nonetheless, that's why Republicans tried to pass that. I, if I recall, Kanye West went to the bill signing. It was it was a whole fiasco. And it, the data is is unclear at best, shall we say, whether whether Trump still managed to gain or, or win, I should say, any more than 8% of the black vote in 2020. And now the talk of the town is that this mugshot is going to make him more relatable to the black community. I mean, I, I, how is that not racist? I, I, I hate to kind of deploy that word casually, but I mean, isn't that just a, a bizarre thing to say? Is that because he has a mugshot, he is somehow more likely to pick up black votes. I mean, what 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 a really weird thing to say. Finally, the the, the final thing we'll say about the Georgia case, the reason Wake another up, reason people. why this is the most perilous, is that Trump has managed to alienate there the entire Republican elected official class. So Governor Brian Kemp, the Lieutenant Governor, Brad Roffensberger, the Secretary of State, who's at the center of that infamous phone call. Trump has done a lot to alienate a lot of them. I mean, Trump ran he fun he basically ran David Perdue as a primary challenger against Brian Kemp. And now Brian Kemp just earlier today was saying how Republicans should not focus on the past or some quote grifter scam. It's really just not looking good there in Georgia. So man, I hope Trump finds a way out of it, but hard to be optimistic. None better Facebook video. Check out our weekly Facebook update video, courtesy of our friend Greg Nunn with None Better Tax Resolution. In today's video, Jason breaks down how black teens are targeting elderly Asians in South Seattle. Why doesn't the SPD consider this a hate crime? Check it out, courtesy of Greg Nunn and None Better Tax Resolution. Welcome back to the Jason Rand Show. Josh Hammer filling in for Jason today. You can find me on Twitter, Josh underscore Hammer. Go ahead and check out my own show, The Josh Hammer Show on Apple Spotify. So as we move towards the second half of the first hour of the program here, look, I, 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 I genuinely wish that Donald Trump is exculpated, acquitted on all of these charges, every single one. That is my earnest wish. I am just coming to you. To try to deliver some sober, some sober, excuse me, some sober, hard analytical predictions based on my own experience, clerking on a federal court of appeals, my own knowledge of, of the justice system. I think that anyone who is standing there and, and saying to you that there is no chance that this man is going to jail is just lying to you. It, that's it's really just that simple. The Georgia case in, in particular, I, I really do continue to feel is his toughest way out of this. In any event, around the same time over the the past 24, 36, 48 hours or so as Trump was dealing with his various legal woes, his 
his next of kin, so to speak, the the number two candidate in virtually all polling in 2024 Republican presidential primary politics, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He took a break from the campaign trail. He returned to the state of Florida. He's been operating out of Tallahassee, the state capital, for the past few days as Florida prepared for and then ultimately handled the best it could, of course. What was at one point a Category 4 hurricane, which is really really horrific that, that that is a very very large number i can't quite recall whether it was technically a cat four or a cat three when it formally made a landfall it was somewhere right along those lines now i, I live in florida I, I i live on the uh, on the east coast of florida thankfully my part of the state ha- has been spared each of these past two hurricanes there was a horrific hurricane also on the gulf coast of florida hurricane ian last Last September or so, just truly leveled parts of Sanibel Island. Fort Myer Beach took a direct blow. Parts of Naples, the Naples Pier, a very iconic pier. I, to this day, I'm actually not sure if it's fully restored after that hurricane almost a year ago. And thankfully, this this current hurricane, Idalia, which has now been downgraded to a tropical storm as of the time that we are talking, it is – Somewhere roughly still over the Carolinas, really at this point kind of making its way out into the Atlantic Ocean. Good riddance, you terrible storm. It thankfully hit, when it first made landfall in Florida, one of the more sparsely populated parts of the state. It's known as the Big Bend region of Florida. So the tail part of the hurricane definitely hit the Tampa Bay area, hit Tampa, hit Clearwater, hit St. Petersburg. But it really directly impacted considerably north of that, but also also east of Tallahassee, well east of Pensacola, Panama City Beach, some of those you know famous white sand beachy resort towns, the so-called Redneck Riviera. If you wanted a hurricane to hit Florida, in other words, this really was the place to do it. So from that standpoint, it, it lucked out. However, it definitely still did a lot of damage. Numerous people tragically have have lost their lives. Typically, uh, at least the, the two, I think three deaths is what I saw this morning, two of which were folks who were driving faster than they should have been in wet roads. The car hydroplaned, hit a tree. I mean, horrible stuff. That death toll certainly could have been much bigger. Again, the death toll for Hurricane Ian last year was considerably bigger than that. But it did still take its damage. So just yesterday, Casey DeSantis, the first lady of Florida, tweeted out this photo of this over 100-year-old oak tree that fell right outside the governor's mansion. Thank goodness it did not fall on the governor's mansion, did not cause anyone to be injured as far as I could tell. That really could have been a heck of a lot worse than it was. Ron DeSantis was actually on Sean Hannity's program on Fox News last night giving an interview from the lawn of the governor's mansion with this fallen oak tree in the background. And it's worth just emphasizing, and I, again I say this as someone who has chosen Florida as my adopted state, the governor of Florida excels in this environment. Right? Ron DeSantis really excels at the actual X's and O's of governing, of crisis management. So let's just rip off some data here. You know, this storm made landfall very late Tuesday evening or early Wednesday morning. At this point, power has already been restored for over 420,000 Florida customers. All state bridges in areas impacted by the hurricane have been cleared. 
The Florida Department of Transportation has cleared 6,600 miles of roadway. Airports in impacted areas are back up and running. Nearly 250 pieces of major equipment, including 140 dump trucks, 59 pumps, 207 other heavy equipment, such as skid steers, things like that, have been deployed. Nearly 1,100 generators have been deployed to help restore traffic signals. It's really just been extremely impressive. And you watch the governor of Florida at these press conferences, at these conferences where he's instructing Floridians to seek higher ground, to not drive, not risk your life, to do this and that. You, you see someone who is just a natural at the actual X's and O's of governing. Say what you will about his presidential campaign. Obviously, the campaign has not been off to the start that many expected or hoped that it would get off to the start of. Say what you will about whether or not he is at ease or relaxed or stiff when he is eating a corn dog at the Iowa State Fair, things like that. When he's going around to kind of small town New Hampshire, all the parades. Say what you will about that. But regardless of how he is as a national campaigner, the man is indisputably extremely talented at managing the nation's third largest state, which probably explains why he won re-election last November in what was once the nation's largest and most iconic purple swing state. That explains why he won by 19.4 percentage points. So let's go ahead and just listen briefly to Florida Governor Santis talking about how you can donate to support hurricane efforts, actually. So we were able to come up and do, and we helped teachers, we helped police officers, we helped firefighters, uh, we helped other folks who had needs. A, a government bureaucracy is not going to be able to solve every problem. There's going to be things that need to be done. So this disaster fund, they've already had a couple million dollars come in, you know, we'll end up more. And then this way, targeted relief uh, that's flexible for people in these areas. So please do go ahead, and if your financial situation permits it, obviously donations to the affected areas are encouraged. Just because it hit fairly sparsely populated parts of Florida does not mean, obviously, that there was not tremendous damage. The oak tree of the governor's mansion in Tallahassee is a particularly stark visual reminder of that. Some small fishing villages up there like Cedar Key. I mean, Cedar Key took an absolutely direct hit. Unclear to me, frankly, whether there will be a cedar key after this. Just a just a terrible thing. It's it's a very well known fishing village for folks who live in that part of the state. And you know, it's funny because even though DeSantis formerly was not campaigning, I mean, he was just doing his job, literally doing his job. He he manages to to, to get in some some campaign like lines that just feel very smooth and natural. So he, here he is talking about looters. I'd also just remind potential looters that people, you never know what you're walking into. People have a right to defend their property. Uh, this part of Florida, you got a lot of advocates and some proponents of the Second Amendment. And I've seen signs in different people's yards in the past after these disasters. And I would say it's probably here. You loot, we shoot. You loot, we shoot. So that's a that is a great slogan. I, you know, there was some talk. I saw some talk on Twitter that DeSantis was actually stealing this line from, from Trump because I guess Trump said it at one point. The The actual origin of this goes back to the 1980s. It was someone in Miami. It was either like the police chief or the police precinct chair, something like that, who actually apparently was the first to popularize that line. So that line has been around for a long time. Neither Trump nor DeSantis can, can really claim credit for it. But anyway, 
the governor of Florida has just unambiguously done a good job, no matter who you support in the primary, whether it's Trump, DeSantis or someone else. Hats off to the governor of Florida for how he has steered the nation's third largest state yet again through what, again, was a Category 4 hurricane. I mean, Hurricane Katrina, which devastated New Orleans back in 2005, was a Category 3. No joke. No joke. It's worth pointing out that on Wednesday, the same day that DeSantis was really kind of getting the state through this hurricane, it's worth pointing out that Trump went on a bender posting, I think, 31 videos on his, on his Truth Social social media platform, including just, you know, the classic kind of the sanctimonious kind of, you know, schoolyard bullying nicknames, things like that. I didn't see Trump actually acknowledge the hurricane or lament it, frankly, until way later in the day. It was Wednesday evening. It was hours after folks were saying, oh, why is he not condemning this? I mean, Donald Trump, of course, moved to Florida. He relocated his official residence to Florida while Ron DeSantis was governor. It was in 2019 or 2020. It was one of those two years that he, that he formally moved his residence there. He's a Floridian. I've been to Mar-a-Lago. I, 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 <laughs> I, have, I have seen it for myself. You know, why are you not acknowledging this horrific humanitarian disaster in your adopted home state? Why are you criticizing the governor of your adopted state in a time of need? So really none of that made any sense to me at all. But again, good for Ron DeSantis for seeing this through the best he possibly could. Check out our weekly Facebook update video courtesy of our friend Greg Nunn with None Better Tax Resolution. In today's video, Jason breaks down how black teens are targeting elderly Asians in South Seattle. Why doesn't the SPD consider this a hate crime? Check it out courtesy of Greg Nunn and None Better Tax Resolution. Welcome back to the Jason Rand Show. Josh Hammer once again in for Jason. You can find me on Twitter, Josh underscore Hammer. You know, I keep on saying Twitter. It's going to take a while to get used to, to saying X. Frankly, just a very silly thing, in my opinion, that Elon Musk did. But he's worth a heck of a lot more money than I'm worth. So I guess I will defer to him when it comes to his thoughts on how to market or promote his own business that he acquired. Anyway, as we head towards the end here of the first hour of the program, I wanted to stay on this same theme of of 2024, the state of the Republican Party and 2024 general election in November and all of that. So let's zoom out just for just for a minute here. Trump wins the election in 2016. Many people of a more libertarian, neoliberal kind of small government, for lack of a better term, many, many folks of those persuasions really start to look in the mirror and ask themselves some very hard questions. You know, is it true that the quintessence of good governance is just not to govern, not to do anything, just to slash, not to do, just to burn, just to cut, not to build? And the Republican Party has definitely taken a more nationalist and, for lack of a better term, because I don't actually like this word that much, but for lack of a better term, a more populist as well turn over the past seven, eight years or so. I have been a strong supporter of this. I, I think that all this, for the most part, is deeply, is deeply healthy on any number of issues, immigration, trade, the Ukraine boondoggle, all of it. 
I, I, I'm very, very sympathetic, very. And not just sympathetic, but I have been vocal. I have been a, a vocal proponent in particular of encouraging Republicans to get more comfortable with wielding political power and not just assuming a political posture of anti-politics, of avoiding the actual art of statecraft and just be content to slash, 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 tax raise, regulatory entities, blah, blah, blah. I, look, taxes are bad, obviously. But the point is it's possible to govern, to do, to build, not just to rest on your laurels and just cut as many agencies as possible – None of which have been cut ever since the New Deal. It remains somewhat of a fanciful idea, no matter how compelling the idea might be. And in particular, what I have said over and over again is that Republicans should get more comfortable wielding power in a similar fashion as the left does, which is to reward the forces of civilizational sanity when it comes to gender ideology, race, immigration, any, any of these issues – and to punish the forces of civilizational arson, critical race theory, gender ideology, open borders, all that stuff. Here is the problem. I didn't think that this had to be said, but the more that I look at what I see online in conservative spaces, the more I think it actually needs to be said. The problem is that in order to have a conversation – about wielding power in order to debate how Republicans, conservatives should actually utilize political power. You have to actually first attain power. You have to win. Again, I, in many ways, I wouldn't have thought that this has to be said. But I have seen so many on the right in the past six, seven, eight years or so adopt this mentality – of permanent victimhood, of victimology. I write a column every week through Creator Syndicate. This is my new column. You can read it everywhere tomorrow morning about Republicans' self-defeating victimology, this mentality of victimhood and martyrdom. Now, much of this sentiment, perhaps all of it, frankly, is totally justified. Ever since Trump went down that escalator, in 2015, a Trump Tower, from the Russia collusion hoax to the Robert Mueller probe to ridiculously silly impeachments to the whole New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story. Remember when they got the 50 or 51 intelligence community spooks to say it was Russian disinformation? Have those idiots ever apologized, the Brennans and Clappers of the world? Obviously, this current crossing of the Rubicon and the criminal prosecutions of the ex former president Donald Trump, it's disgusting. At some point, simply whining about it and relishing our second-tier status in our two-tier society, at some point that becomes self-defeating. Who who is an independent voter or a moderate is ever going to want to join a side that thinks of itself as perpetual victims and martyrs? And there's a lot of money to be made off this, frankly. Trump, his Save America PAC, which he is now basically bled dry paying his legal bills, he fundraised for a long time on reversing the 2020 election, on stop the steal and all this stuff. Again, he hasn't really done anything about it. 
As far as I'm aware, you've not spent a single dollar to support the legal defense of those who are being unjustly prosecuted for being at the U.S. Capitol in the wrong place at the wrong time on January 6, 2021. Many others as well. You know, Carrie Lake lost a tough election in Arizona to Katie Hobbs for the Arizona gubernatorial race last November. I was a big fan of Carrie Lake on the campaign trail. I thought she had an absolutely compelling presence on both television and the stump. But she lost. It was a narrow race, a narrow race, but she lost. And then for months and months afterward, it was the same thing. This stop the steal fundraising. She was suing to try to be installed as the governor of Arizona in the governor's mansion in Phoenix. Are, are you kidding me? I, what judge would ever issue a writ of mandamus to physically remove some – I mean it, it just – Baker's belief. It defies reality. It is living in an alternative universe. And now we see in Georgia, State Senator Colton Moore, a Republican, is putting out a petition trying to call for a special session of the legislature to stop – Fonnie Wilson's prosecution of Donald Trump. The problem here, and Colton Moore knows this, is that you need three-fifths of the legislature to have that special se session. Republicans don't have a three-fifths majority, so it's just not going to happen. It's, not, it's, it's a nothing burger. It's a fun thought experiment. But let's come back to reality and try to chart a path forward here. And like all the others, Colton Moore has been fundraising off of this. Look, the, the grift is real is the point I'm trying to make here. The grift is real. And again, I, I feel terrible for Donald Trump that he is dealing with all these unjust criminal prosecutions. But if you think that there is no chance whatsoever that Trump is going to end up in prison, if you if you think that someone can just flip a switch and therefore he's acquitted on all charges, I don't know what you are talking about. That's not how it works. You know, Charlie Kirk earlier this week, and I like Charlie. I, 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 I happen to like him a lot, actually. I was on a panel with him at the Turning Point USA Student Action Summit back in the summer of 2021. We published Charlie any number of times at Newsweek back when I was opinion editor there. I, I happen to agree with Charlie on the overwhelming majority of things. What was not a fan of something he said earlier this week. Let's take a quick listen to that. Ron DeSantis Super PAC, sitting on $110 million, has just said that they are doing a $12 million ad placement right now to support Ron DeSantis. I think Ron DeSantis is a great governor. Why is he trying to ruin his political career right now? Spend that money to help us win in the general. Why are you buying ads to make consultants rich in Iowa? Just say, look, I'm going to go be governor of Florida and turn Florida into the most Republican state. I'm going to deploy my $100 million to help us defeat Joe Biden. He would be hero status in the Republican Party, win or lose. Again, I like Charlie, and I'm sorry to say it, but this is just incredibly silly. Incredibly silly. The notion that the number two candidate in the race should just drop out and redirect all of his money to help his arch rival who is a 77-year-old man facing 91 criminal counts across four separate geographical jurisdictions. You, you have to be comfortable with perhaps even embrace the notion of losing, of losing in order to come to that conclusion. You know, according to a recent Associated Press poll, 64% of Americans said they either, quote, 
will definitely not or probably not vote for Donald Trump in a general election. That means that Trump can bank on 36 percent and quite possibly not a heck of a lot more than that. It's just so silly. I mean, I saw I saw Matt Schlapp, the head of the of the American Conservative Union CPAC. Again, I've met Matt a number of times. I've spoken at a number of CPAC conferences, but I saw him say something very similar about like now is the time to kind of get behind Trump, redirect all of your money to the legal defense, the fees. Do we want to win or not? Are we content to just lose, to just be in permanent opposition? Now, that's not saying that the candidate doesn't matter. I would gladly, gladly vote for Trump over many of these boomer conservatives who are throwback to the 1980s, the Mike Pence's, Nikki Haley's of the world. But surely, surely, we need to think about the possibility of winning when we go about this whole process. I'm not hearing a whole lot of that. I really, really, really hope that changes for the sake of the republic, if nothing else.